As you remain standing, let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? The great reformer of the church, John Calvin, said of the book of Romans, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. Calvin could make such a remark because, on one hand, the book of Romans is relatively simple. Paul lays out the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ to a a church that he has not yet met and yet loves with the affection of a sibling. He desires to make plain to them what it is to know, love, and follow Jesus. Yet, at the same time, the theology in this letter is so deep and rich that Martin Luther would write, it is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. And so I look forward to each and every one of you memorizing every single word of this book. We'll have a test at the end of the the series, I'm sure. Just as long as you are unwilling to test me on that feed. It is to this profound treasure of God's word that we will turn our attention over the coming weeks and months. This book of Romans is the most pure theology. It is inspired by the Spirit of God himself from one of the greatest minds in Christian history, and it comes from a pastor's heart. Make no mistake, Paul does not convey all this brilliant theology to to no end, but it is because he loves the church in Rome, and he desires nothing more, as he says beginning in verse 11, than to give them a gift that will strengthen them so that in seeing one another, they would be mutually blessed by one another's faith. And that, my friends, is truly the end of all good theology and ministry, that the people of God would be built up, encouraged and empowered to follow Jesus, brought to praise and worship our Father as he is worthy. And so that is our goal as well for this series. That as we dive into this book, we would be encouraged. We would be uplifted and have our faith strengthened. We would have our love of God renewed, revived, and perhaps even reborn as our hearts are captured by the gospel of grace and we learn to walk that grace-filled road with Jesus. Now, in truth, we could spend multiple weeks covering just the first verse of Romans. You can ask Josiah afterwards. He heard very much this week about how there is far too much in this passage for me to cover in one sermon. And so today, acknowledging that, we're going to begin by addressing some relatively simple points. 
We're going to talk about what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That the gospel makes all the difference in the world, and that the gospel is received by faith. We're going to allow here the first few few verses of our passage to be our guide as we begin to dive into this first half of chapter 1. Paul here opens his letter by identifying himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now we want to remember that he has not yet met these people. He's never been to the church in Rome. And so these words are not only a polite greeting, but a way of introducing himself to them. And what is it that he highlights? He is a servant of Christ Jesus. Before he is anything else, Paul is a servant of Jesus. Imagine for a moment that that would be the first thing that people learned about you. That your whole identity is that of a servant to someone else. We could actually make it even more uncomfortable if we wanted to here. By using the more literal translation of the word translated servant for us. That would be slave. Paul a slave of Christ Jesus. We are only five words into this epistle, and I can already see people squirming uncomfortably. That is how Paul introduces himself. That is what he wants them to know more than anything, that from the beginning, he serves Jesus. And so everything else that he says comes from that perspective. This is a servant of Christ writing to them about the one he serves. He tells them explicitly that he is a servant called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son. Paul is a servant of Christ called by God to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything about Paul, who he is, what he does, it's about Jesus. And as a servant of Jesus, he is called, as verse 5 tells us, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, meaning Jesus' name. And as verse 14 tells us, To present the gospel to anyone and everyone. No idea what that is. (laughs) Old pipes in an old building, I hope. Otherwise, if it's someone, they're welcome to join us. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter who Paul is? Why does it matter how he identifies himself or introduces himself? Well, it matters... Not simply for the church to get to know him, but so that they might know what they themselves have called to be. You see, in this one verse, Paul is not just describing who he is, but who the Christian is. Christians are those who are called to be servants of Jesus Christ, called by God to serve 
Jesus, to claim the title of Christian, is to claim to be a servant of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 6. Verses 3 through 5, they expand more on who Jesus is, but then he shifts back in verse 6 to the Christians in Rome. He writes, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To belong to him. Not appreciate him one day a week, but to belong to him. That is what it means to be a servant. You belong to the one that you serve. And so it's not just Paul who is a servant. It is any who claim faith in Jesus. You belong to him. And that means that just as it was true for Paul, it is true for every Christian since that if you believe in Christ, you no longer live for yourself, but for him. You belong to him. Perhaps that is why I saw so much squirming going on when I brought up the idea of being a servant or even a slave to Jesus. We don't like the idea of belonging to another person. Because we know that to say that makes a claim on who we are and what we do. That we don't just get to live however we want. We don't get to play by our own rules and decide for ourselves whatever is best for us. But rather, the one we serve is the one who makes those decisions. That's actually what Paul has in mind when he speaks about the obedience of faith, that the the Christian is a servant of Christ and as such is meant to be obedient to him. You can't really be a servant to someone by rebelling against them, right? That that just kind of makes you like a bad employee, not really a servant. And so now maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds terrible. (laughs) I don't want to be a servant. I know what's best for me, and I want to live as I decide is best for me in any given moment. So so no thanks to all this servant of Jesus stuff. And to that I say, I know you have that impulse. And I know I have that impulse. And guess what? Paul knows you have that impulse too. And so he's going to be spending the next few chapters addressing just where that impulse comes from and how, if we allow it, It will destroy us. But that's for the coming weeks. So you'll need to stay tuned. Keep coming out. One thing we can say for sure here is that you cannot have the obedience of faith. You cannot actually serve Jesus without faith itself. Specifically, without faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hearing the gospel and believing the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, our hearts are then changed so that we will actually desire to live as his servant and have our lives conformed to his. And so it starts with faith. Believing in him creates that desire to be a servant. And so if we reject the idea of being a servant of his, we actually got to take a moment and ask ourselves, what is it that I believe in him? What is it about being a servant 
that I find so challenging. Faith in Jesus is necessary to follow him. Faith in the gospel. And so what is the gospel then? If if faith in it is that important, we better know what it is, right? So what does Paul tell us that the gospel is? Jump down to the end of our passage. Paul writes there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to sit in these verses. We're going to unpack what it is that Paul is talking about here. So what is the gospel? Ultimately, that's what he's addressing. And he tells us it's the power of God for salvation. It is the means through which God has brought about salvation, and therefore it is necessary for salvation. You cannot have salvation without the thing that God uses to save us. That's just basic logic, right? Now, when I read this verse, my mind jumped back to a specific word. It kind of focused on one word in particular, and then it jumped to the other place in this chapter that this word was used, and that word was power. It is the power of God for salvation. Well, back in verse 4, Paul tells us that Jesus is revealed or declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, admittedly, at this point, I kind of just want to geek out a little bit and talk about how amazing it is that all three persons of the Trinity are recorded just in this one verse. We don't have time for my rabbit trails this morning, sadly. All the more reason for you to come to Bible study this week. To the point of this sermon, why does this verse matter? Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. In verse 3, we're told that the gospel is concerning or about Jesus. We start to connect the dots here between verses 3, 4, and 16, and we realize we are being told how it is that God works salvation. It is through his power, and specifically through his power of resurrection, of bringing what was dead to life again. The gospel is all about how God has acted to save his people, and he has acted in power to raise Jesus from the dead so that all who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, who believe in the risen Lord, might be saved by God. In this very first chapter then, Paul tells us that to be a servant of Jesus Christ is to be one who has received the power of God for salvation. And so you cannot serve Jesus without believing in him, and you cannot follow him unless you have been saved by him. And so none of these things are possible apart from Jesus. 
Jesus, his gospel, the good news that he came to live and die and rise again for us, it makes all the difference in the world. Because in him, the power of God for salvation is shown. And so apart from him, salvation is impossible. Whatever it is that we cling to, apart from Jesus, there is no salvation in it. He is absolutely necessary. And so thanks be to God then that the gospel is the free and gracious gift that he extends to any and to all. Verse 16 again. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. No one then, friends, is outside of the reach of the gospel. Just in case the word everyone was unclear to us, Paul specifies to the Jew and to the Greek, or to the Jew and to the Gentile. It's as if he's saying in this moment, there's two types of people in the world. There's Jews and non-Jews. And Jesus came to save both groups. There is no one outside the reach of the gospel. He is making it explicit. Coming to Jesus, being saved by him, it's not about your background, it's not about your DNA, none of that qualifies you to receive the gospel. What Christ has done for you and specifically what is shown through his resurrection was all about him. And it's extended to you by him. And so we cannot put ourselves or anyone else outside of the reach of the gospel. Regardless of your background, your sin, your way of life, or other people's background, sin, or way of life. The gospel, the truth that Jesus came to live and die for you, it extends to us all. And it is to be received by faith. To everyone, he wrote, who believes. The gospel is not about how often you come to church, friends. Now, don't hear you can get up and leave, okay? I want you to come to church. But it's not like you're earning merit with God by showing up week by week. We come because we love him and we need him. It's not about the volunteer hours you're putting in, as great as those are. It's not about how nice you are to people, though you should still be nice to people. It's not even about how many hugs you give, and I know you all like to give hugs. It's about faith in him. Receiving the gospel is about believing in Jesus, not what you do for him. We will have much, much more to say about that. One last thing to cover about the gospel before we close. It's not simply about the salvation that Christ offers. Verse 17 tells us, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, receiving the gospel, it's not divine fire insurance. 
It's not your get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel makes demands upon our lives. Being a servant of Jesus makes a demand upon our lives. The gospel is about how we come to faith and then how we live out our faith. You see, so many of us, we, even if we don't explicitly say it, we act like being a Christian is coming to church, saying you're sorry, hearing a sermon, getting some communion, then going to live how you want, and then coming back on Sunday, saying you're sorry, get some communion, wash, rinse, repeat. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's, it's trying to take advantage of God, not, not serving him. But the fact that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel is it's actually a gift to us. Because if the gospel does make demands on our lives, if it's about more than, than just staying out of hell, then could you imagine what it would be if God never actually told us what his righteousness is or how to follow him. It would be a bit like being hired as a healthcare worker and then never actually being given medical training, but then being blamed when your patient isn't cared for properly. It'd be unfair, right? It'd be cruel even. Paul will go in great detail about what it is to follow Jesus. But here he lays the foundation. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From beginning to end, the gospel is about faith in Christ. It is unreasonable to expect that anyone would or could live with the power of God working in them without actually believing in Him, right? It would be unreasonable to say that life as a servant of God is all about the good things that I do for God because without believing in God, you wouldn't do any good things for Him. It doesn't make sense. And so living as a servant of Christ... It is the free gift of God extended to all people to be received by faith. Faith is the necessary component of all parts of our life in Christ. It's why in verse 8, Paul will give thanks, not for how morally upright these people in Rome are, but because their faith is being proclaimed. For that is how we receive Christ and know what it is to be his servant. And it is faith which must be held on to. It must be clung to. Because we live in a world that demands that we are not to be a servant of anyone or anything other than ourselves. We bristle at the very idea of being a servant. And yet here is a man who many of us would lift up as one of the greatest Christians to ever live, and he defines himself just as that, and every single Christian who will come after him, a servant. And so why, if we believe in Jesus, would we bristle at that idea? Perhaps it's because to be a servant of Christ means to be fully submitted to him. Every part of our lives, shaped and conformed to the righteousness of God instead of living our own way. That sounds great in theory, right? 
until we actually get out there. Or perhaps it's because to to be a servant of his is to know that we have been given this gracious gift that we never earned or did anything to deserve. And that's hard for us to take because we want it to be about what we've done. These are the very things that Paul will dive deeply into throughout this epistle. They're great questions for us to be grappling with as we begin our time here. Why do I balk at the idea of serving Jesus? Why does it grate against me to serve someone else? Do do I really believe that he lived and died for me, that I can be his by believing in him? Am I truly submitted to him? Do I even know what that means and what that looks like in my day-to-day life? All of these are wonderful questions, and I'm sure you would all love for me to spend the next half an hour outlining each and every one of them, but we're not going to do that. These are the questions we'll be wrestling with as we spend our time in this book. But as we begin our time, we do so with the foundation that Paul has laid himself, that he's given to these faithful Christians in Rome, to know that the gospel is on offer for us and received by faith. That by faith in Christ, through his gracious act, we can have peace with God and be made his forever. To live as his servant. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, wrote these things that you in the world may know. That it is the gospel that makes all the difference in the world. And by faith, you can receive it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.